At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Right now on Fast, charting the markets, we'll hear from one top technician who says follow the rates. If yields keep moving higher, the S&P will keep heading lower. The charts, the trades, and the opportunities straight ahead. Plus, China troubles, new data showing American confidence in doing business with Beijing is at an all-time low. We'll go inside that report and see what impact this will have on our economy. And later, a buzzkill in aisle six, a nuclear move in uranium, and the energy trade that kept grinding higher or keep, I should say, as it continues grinding higher. I'm Courtney Reagan, informalist Lee this evening. This is Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, we have Bono and Eisen, we have Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Tim Seymour. And we will start with a market rebound running out of steam, the S&P trying and failing to bounce back after Friday's losses, briefly turning positive before closing out in the red again. The Dow and NASDAQ also posting a second day of losses, the Dow falling below its 50-day moving average for the first time in over a month, the NASDAQ more than 25% below its record high. Meanwhile, the dollar was back in rally mode, touching its highest level in over 20 years earlier in the day. Treasury yields also on the rise with the 10-year at its highest in two months. So as we head into the final few trading days of the month, what are moves like all this telling you, Dan? Uh, well, I think you continue to take profits in stocks that you've gained um, you know, very nicely off the June lows here. The S&P 500 was up about 19% from those lows. The Nasdaq was up more than that in the last two days since uh, Chair Powell told us there's going to be some pain associated with their battle with inflation. That was not the reason why the market rallied over the course of the summer. And if you think about what has happened here, fine. I think a lot of people can get their arms around the fact that maybe we have reached peak levels in some of these inflationary readings. But what happens to the economy, what happens to corporate profits next is probably the thing that weighs on the stock market and retests those lows back in June, in my opinion, that we saw in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. And I'll just say one other point. We've been talking about this really weird sort of economic environment we've been in. We had some readings about recession, but people kind of explain them away. Then they say, well, the economic data as it relates to employment is not actually suggesting that. When you think about corporate Corporate profits, though, right now, companies have been able to pass through some of the adverse effects of inflation to consumers. But right now, we're seeing savings rates really starting to get hit. We're seeing, again, the Fed going into another phase of tightening as it relates to QT. So the cost of money has gotten a lot more expensive. So to me, I just think we're going to see companies not able to pass it through. They're going to see their margins being pressured. I think that's going to weigh on equity valuations over the next few months. Bono, what do you make of uh, today's move to attempt to rally? and then just lose steam right at the end, sort of continuing what we ended up seeing at the end of the day on Friday. Well, I think it's better than the worst case scenario, which would have been us opening on the lows and then pressing and establishing new lows. So you did see that there was still some demand in the market as we came off from, we bounced from like the, the session lows, but you would have liked to, to see what I believe Steve mentioned on Friday, opening establishing lows and then rallying squarely up and to the right off those lows. And we didn't see that. And I think a lot of the points that Dan mentioned 
are, <clears throat> are going to play through. We, we point to Q2 earnings and we say, okay, for the most part, it looks like we've grown at about 8 to 9%. Uh, we've beat expectations, earnings haven't cratered, but it's going to take quite a bit of time for this quantitative tightening to kind of play through. It's going to take a, a bit more time for this narrative to play through and for us to see exactly how the consumer is going to be affected. Um, in terms of retesting the lows, I mean, I think it's very much in the cards. We saw you know, a PE multiples expand from about 15 and a half to about 19, and now we're trading back towards 18-ish. You know, I think, you know, these, these average around 15 or 16. So that does say that there is some room to the downside side still to be had. And Guy, what do you make about uh, comments today from Neil Kashkar? He said in an interview, actually, I was happy to see how Chair Powell's Jackson Hole speech was received. I assume he means he was happy with the sell-off he saw on Friday, potentially what continued here today. Proper decorum prohibits me from saying what I really think about those comments, uh, but I'm sure the viewing and listening audience knows, given my track record with the Federal Reserve. But as Tim said on our call, and I will echo that because I thought the same thing, this was probably one of the most dovish people for the longest period of time at the Federal Reserve was sort of, I want to use the word mocking people that, you know, said this was anything but transitory. Now here we are, seems to be as hawkish as everybody else. So I think he's finally seems to have figured it out. It's better late than never. The old thing, better to, you know, the best day to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best day is today. Uh, with that said, that's why the market took the next leg lower. And quickly, what I find really almost amusing is, you know, when the don't fight the Fed mantra is in vogue, when the Fed is adding liquidity, nobody seems to waver or blink. Yet somehow don't fight the Fed in this environment, everybody seems to want to question. And quite frankly, I think it's pretty simple on both ends of the spectrum. <clears throat> Tim, go ahead and jump in there. Guy kind of brought you in early. Well, no. So, so uh, right. We we've been critical of the 180 degrees on Fed sentiment and within the and within the Fed. Um, what's interesting is as much as what our Fed said is also what other central banks around the world also said. Remember, they were in Jackson Hole as well. Uh, universally hawkish around the world, especially in places where I think their economies have less to do. So I think uh, the implications for the global economy, we, we all are doing that math. I think we've also in this early discussion on the show talked about where S&P earnings are. We're almost all the way through second quarter earnings. And it was, you know, the, the, the worst thing about second quarter earnings is that they were very good. Um, if you're a market participant. But back to what Guy said, and in terms of, you know, what, what fighting the Fed, um, I look at positioning in markets. That, to me, at least right now, is the part that's a, a bit of a silver lining to uh, horrible sentiment, uh, positioning which is both net short and in, in, in almost record levels on the S&P, uh, positioning across different parts of the Treasury curve, which, in, which indicates overbought conditions uh, and where people continue to believe that you've, you know, you've, you've got some of this recessionary backdrop. Meanwhile, um, on the short end, and, and open interest around the two-year note, you're also seeing uh, a lot of people positioning for higher rates. So I think the market, the professional community, we refer to them as, uh, is, is actually not been fighting the Fed. I, I think what might be worrying people, we, we quote some of these inflows in the retail community uh, that all the way through really the second quarter had not shown any signs of abating. Um, that's the part of the market that I'm most concerned about. But the, the silver lining is that I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of hawkishness priced into rates. Look at the bond market has barely moved since Jackson Hole, even since before Jackson Hole. Um, and positioning in terms of cash and overall hedge funds uh, tell you people think that the market could go lower. 
Dan, what do you think about the importance of the dollar hitting 20-year lows again? I mean, that has some real implications. Yeah, so that goes right into that whole, um, you know, kind of conversation about margins, right? So it's not just the fact that a lot of input costs are much higher because of inflation. You also have this situation for U.S. multinationals where you have a dollar, like you say, at 20-year highs versus the euro in particular. You also, you know, I, I mean, like, just think about that. I mean, just think about, you know, like kind of the pressures on cor- corporate margins. It goes back to what are companies able to to pass through and we're getting a little bit long in the tooth. I think a lot of people bought into that whole transitory narrative and they thought the Fed might be done by now. But if you're thinking about this and you're trying to forecast your, your business, and we saw this in Q2 um, earnings and Q3 guidance, there is just not a whole heck of a lot of visibility. And we also saw companies that had guided down, had then guided down again in pre-announcements weeks or a month or so later. I think we're gonna see a bunch of that in September. And I think you started off the conversation, how is the last few days of this month going to end? Probably not particularly well, and September is not going to be great either because I do think we're going to have some major earnings disappointments. And then I think the other thing is, is that we're going to start to get some economic data that shows unemployment starting to tick up. And, and I think once you get really concerned about this consumer, that's probably when confidence really kind of loses it a little bit. And that's when stocks go back and they test those lows. It does seem like we're starting to see some cracks there. Bono, and if I could go back to sort of a point that Tim started to bring up when we talked about it at the beginning of the show with the, the move in rates. I mean, the 10-year here uh, is sitting above 3.1 right now. And then uh, one of our guests, of course, thinking that you're only going to go lower from here on the S&P 500. How closely should we be watching the 10-year and the moves it's making? Oh, I mean, I think, well, it's not just a 10-year. I think we got to be looking the at two-year. the two-year, yeah. the 10-year independently, and then the two and 10-year inversion. Okay. I think those there. are the three points that we're, those are, there's your triangle offense right there. <laughs> that's where you, that's what you got to be paying attention to. Um, you know, I think that's half the story. I also think real rates is the other half of the story. And with inflation still in mid-eights, if we're truly going to get to a neutral terminal rate, there might be a lot more moves ahead. And I think Friday kind of brought that whole possibility full circle with the rhetoric that was used by Chairperson Powell. And so, you know, I think, again, the twos, tens, twos and tens independently, and then where we are from a real rate point of view, I think that is really where the, uh, where the focal points are going to be going forward. Guy, Dan was bringing up uh, sort of the idea of, of the jobless rate or where we are with unemployment. And obviously we're in this very strange period of time with very high inflation, but still relatively strong employment. We started to hear companies, of course, talking about layoffs, being a little bit more cautious with their forward planning. But when we're looking at the economic data, the job market still looks fairly strong. Where should we be looking to start to see those initial cracks? Maybe on the early goings before it's very widely known that, yes, this policy is finally taking uh, taking a bite out of employment. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think you look for a couple of things. I think we're seeing it on the margins in terms of credit card debt now north of a trillion dollars. That's problematic. And I think the next leg of that, well, just again, my opinion is I think almost by definition, uh, unemployment rates going to start to tick higher, which I think the Federal Reserve probably wants, quite frankly. I don't think they right. would outwardly say that. And they, they need a number of different things to happen to slow things down. But quickly, I think Bonowin's point about real rates actually being negative is spot on. And again, you know, people will say, well, wait a second, inflation is going to come down as they raise rates. That'll take care of itself. There's some truth to that without question. The problem is, you know, real rates in this country have been negative for quite some time. And it takes a long time and a lot of pain using Neil Kashkari's phrase to get there. And we're in the midst of it now. 
And yeah, Chair Powell also used that word pain, I think, to your point, that while they don't necessarily want to admit that they have to see some weakening in the job market, it may be a necessary means to an end to get a handle on inflation. We're going to move on here very quickly. Our next guest says that there is risk the bear market could be roaring back. So let's go off the charts with Chris Barone, a strategist of Baird Company. Chris, what levels are you watching? What are the charts telling you right now? Yeah, well, I think we got to put the last several days in some con- into some contact into some context here, and we've had this rally over the last couple months. Remember, the entire move took place below a downward sloping 200-day average, and I thought what was interesting on Friday and again today, for the first time in a couple months, you had all the major indices go on and make new one-month lows. And our rule really has been, when you make a new one-month low underneath the 200-day, it's a pretty good message to step aside. It's often the sign that the downtrend is reasserting itself. So we got that on the S&P, we got that on the triple Q's uh, over the last several days. And if you go to the second slide, you know what we show you here is the number of individual stocks making new one-month lows has started to re-expand uh, here as well. On Friday, about 30%. Today, about 50% of the S&P made a new uh, one-month low. So you have names in weak trends making new one-month lows. It's historically a signal that, hey, let's take a step back from this rally. Let's protect ourselves. Let's preserve uh, some capital. Now, what I think is driving all of this uh, is this move in rates. And our big call the last several months has been that bond yields would remain stickier than the consensus believed. I think we certainly have seen that with 10-year yields here back above 310, but really two-year yields, I think, uh, is the big story. New cycle high on two-year yields. You have European yields uh, on the verge of new highs as well. But what's really curious about this move, despite yields up, we've seen nothing from banks. So banks remain weak. Utilities have continued to exert themselves as leadership. So I see late cycle leadership. I see banks weak. I see utilities strong. And I see rates uh, at new highs. Now, if you think about this just in terms of leadership, our other big view here has been sell stuff like technology, sell stuff like discretionary in favor of energy. So last two slides here, look at tech relative to energy. I think this is one of the most important pairs in the market. This couldn't even get back above the 200-day. This has failed. And then lastly, discretionary versus energy, right? This is the whole secular leadership debate right now. I prefer, I prefer the energy name over consumer. I think this has failed. I think rates up and risk to S&P here. Hey, Chris, it's Tim. I prefer the equity, uh, excuse me, the energy trade as well. And I guess my my question ultimately back to some of the leadership that had been defining the bull market for five years, uh, the underperformance of semiconductors, and I talk about semis all the time, to the S&P. So I I look at that downtrend all the way back from, say, December of 2021 of semis to the S&P. Looked like we were breaking above that downtrend, but in fact, doesn't look like we ever did. I just, can you comment on that? Because that's a relationship that really has defined much of the market of the last 10 years. Uh, Tim, great point, and we're all over that. We talk about it every day. The two leadership relationships that have really defined the decade were semis over S&P and discretionary over S&P. I think both are done. Just go chart by chart among the semis. NVIDIA, weak. AMD, weak. Uh, we've seen Micron break down. Qualcomm has rolled over. So I think you're spot on. This change away from semis is not a cyclical change. I think it's a secular one. I think semis are done as your leadership. They were so good for a decade. Don't expect it going forward. 
Thank you very much, Chris Ferrone of Strategis. Let's go Thank ahead you. and trade this. Uh, Guy, I'm going to turn to you because Bonowin sort of already had a say in his piece when he was talking about the two-year, the 10-year, the relationship between the two, and then each of them on their own. But Chris brought up some interesting charts there. What do you make of them? Well, I mean, he brings up the semis, and Tim said this for a while. I mean, that's the new oil. And if they start to roll over, I don't think it augurs particularly well. I'll say this about yields quickly. You're in an environment now, in my opinion, that if 10-year yields go higher, it's probably not good because they're not going higher because the economy is getting better. And if yields go lower, it's probably not good because it's probably some form of flight to quality because the market's selling off. But I'll tell you, if you're looking for a trade, uh, that TLT traded down to 108-ish back in October of 2018. Dan can tell you exactly what happened back then. And we made that low again. So a little bit of double bottom to trade against. And maybe you will see a flight to quality in the form of bonds here. Dan, it's interesting. You know, Chris also brought up financials and not having done much there, even as rates are moving higher. I'm just looking over one month down about nine-tenths of a percent, sort of smack in the middle of, yeah, of the, all the, the moves. They don't act great. And I know Mike uh, Mayo was just on the OT mm-hmm. with Scott before, and he was talking about how well capitalized these banks are mm-hmm. and, and just really how different they are than the last sort of recession that we had, um, you know, prior to the pandemic, that sort of thing. I, they don't act well. I mean, I just say keep an eye on J.P. Morgan. Close that around 114, 110 is that kind of line in the sand, and I think that would be a good indicator just about how bad the consumer um, is going to get. And we've been talking about the outperformance of Goldman and Morgan Sachs, uh, Goldman and Morgan Stanley (laughs) over the last um, few months or so in some of those more investment bank looking ones, not the money centers have acted um, a bit better. And I'll just say this, what Guy just outlined about yields Mm -hmm. is that, you know, that 10 year, if it were to come in, if there is a flight to quality, it really speaks to the lack of growth. And that really does speak to the fact that you have a two year yield, you know, at 3.4 or something like that. And it just speaks to an inflationary environment, which again, going back to the whole theme about this block is that that should weigh on equity valuations. Absolutely. It makes sense. It seems as if it did on Friday and then into today as well. Well, coming up in need of a miracle, the big recession warning from top economist Stephen Roach, where he says the economy is heading next. But first, natural born leader Nat Gas on a tear the last two months up nearly 45 percent. So can the commodity keep climbing? We'll drill into that trade next when Fast Money returns. We'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to Fast Money. Despite the sea of red today, energy finishing in the green, the best performing sector in the S&P, five of the top six performers in the index coming from the oil patch. And natural gas continuing to rocket higher. The commodity is up more than 70% this quarter. So where do we go from here and what names stand to benefit? Tim, this is pretty incredible when you look at the energy trade compared to almost everything else on the board. Well, 
Chris Ferrone talked about leadership in the energy sector, and I think we, we have it again. And the ability to hold kind of that $90 level in Brent uh, or WTI, you, you've, you've seen the reassertion of a thesis that, to me, is, is difficult to challenge. You can challenge demand side. You can't challenge supply side. And when it comes to Nat Gas, what you're also seeing is that U.S. Nat Gas is, is really uh, a solution for Europe that, that is going to continue to drive, uh, I think, smart investment coming out of the U.S. U.S. shale players uh, are going to have $200 billion in free cash flow in 2022. It's incredible to think of the transformation of the balance sheet. So talking about energy as a proper investment as opposed to just a trade to be caught in the middle of either a global geopolitical event or supply disruption, I think you have to think about these companies differently. And if you look at the XLF, excuse me, the XLE and the, the breakout off of those lows and really more or less holding that 200 day, uh, I think the price action obviously has been very constructive. You're now not buying energy on a dip. XLE has outperformed and been up uh, almost 30% in the last 30 sessions. So the dynamics on the macro, we heard more of it today. Uh, Libyan disruption, uh, the fact that Iran is apparently enriching uranium. I'll let other people decide whether that's happening or not. But uh, seeing Iranian oil flow anytime soon, I don't think so. Uh, seeing the supply disruption and some of the issues. And then OPEC meets on September 5th. Uh, and I think, uh, and guys alluded to this too, I, I think, you know, OPEC plus and OPEC and these trips we've spent to the Middle East to see if we can buddy up, uh, I think OPEC's going to do what's best for OPEC. And right now, that may be higher prices. I think doesn't OPEC always do what's best for OPEC? Well, uh, your WTI is sitting just below about 97, but really natural gas is sort of what we were talking about here, leading the way higher. Uh, Guy, you were nodding a lot during a lot of Tim's points. I don't know where you want to take off there, but I guess I'll just kick it off with natural gas there. I mean, what's the play to make when you've already seen such a big run? Can it continue to go? Do you play the commodity or do you actually play some of the, something on the equity side? Well, I mean, the equities are tough. And you look at a name like, and I'm not advocating this, but just for context, look at a name like Tellurian, which was got just obliterated today on a day where Nat Gas really didn't do all that much. So Nat Gas plays are difficult, but you're trying to connect the dots here. And mm -hmm. I still think you say with the levered energy names, the names like we talked about them over and over again, PSX, names like APA, oil service names have rallied 30% to Tim's point, probably still further room to the upside. But I'll say this, I think for emphasis, you know, a lot of things lined up for oil to go lower. The SPR release, which, you know, we can debate whether it was politically expedient or it actually did something, doesn't matter. But what's really important here, I think a lot of people sold crude oil, in my opinion, thinking this global slowdown was gonna affect demand. I totally understand that. The problem is it hasn't yet. Demand is still probably pre-19 level. So the demand is there and there's no supply, at least very limited supply. So to me, that is a crude going higher. And I think you want to stay in these levered energy names. Bono, and do you believe in sort of this fundamental argument? And if supply and demand are out of whack, then prices just have to go higher? Uh, certainly. I mean, clearly with any commodity, supply and demand are really going to be your drivers. But I think it's, I think it's bigger than that. Okay. Previously, when we talked about the shift away from technology, what we said was, listen, the big five really have what others don't, and that's of cash fortress balance sheet. That was the perceived margin of safety. Now it's free cash flow. Guy, Tim both mentioned it. It's dividend yield and it's the inflation hedge. And so we have uncertainty around all of these things. I want something that's going to return cash or going to reinvest it in a way that I believe 
believe is actually going to be accretive. I want companies that are generating significant amounts of free, free cash flow. You're seeing the antithesis of that in the, the large growth at any price type of names. You're seeing those get punished right as you're seeing names that generate ex- excellent free cash flow kind of straight higher. And the inflation story seems to be a bit murky. So I want something that's going to give me the benefit of free cash flow and return cash to me and, you know, um, the, the offsetting of inflationary pressures if they continue to persist to the persist to the upside. So aside from the supply and demand story, which I do think are tailwinds for these names, I think they offer also offer those other three aspects that give investors a bit of, you know, calm and solace in, in an environment where there's just so much uncertainty and unknown. Strong financials, not too much to ask for, right? When you're Absolutely. looking into uh, different <laughs> things to invest in. Bono and thank you. Well, there's a lot more fast to come. Here's what's coming up next. Avoiding a recession will take a miracle. The stark warning from a top economist. So is the worst yet to come? The details next. Plus, time for some protection plays. Professor Coe is laying out how to navigate the market volatility with options. That action ahead. You're watching Fast Money. Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Fast Money. Companies' confidence about doing business in China plunging to a record low. A new survey finding that a fifth of U.S. firms doing business in that country are at least somewhat pessimistic about their five-year business outlook. That compares to 9% last year. And the prognosis at home may not be much better. Our next guest warns the U.S. needs a miracle to avoid a recession. Economist Stephen Roach is the former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. He is now a Yale University senior fellow. And Stephen has a new book coming out in November, Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives. Well, Stephen, thank you for joining us. And we didn't mean to take the words out of your mouth there about what you think about a recession coming forward. But please share your theory. Well, it's a pretty simple theory, uh, Courtney, that that is if you take uh Fed Chair Jay Powell uh, at his word, and and I now do, uh, he wants to move uh, monetary policy to a restrictive stance. And he's doing that from uh, a point where the Fed right now is wildly accommodative. The real federal funds rate is the best way we can measure the stance of the Federal Reserve. That's the nominal funds rate less the year over year uh, headline CPI inflation rate, it's still a negative uh, 6.2%. Um, at the end of this year, even um, if inflation slows <clears throat> um, considerably further and the Fed uh, hikes rates by another um, 175 basis points, the real Fed funds rate will still be negative by about Uh, 2%. So uh, all I'm saying is the real Fed funds rate needs to go well above the uh, neutral level, which 
uh, over the past 60 years has been about uh, uh, plus one percent in real terms. It's probably got to go to two. And so you're going to take the real federal funds rate uh, from its low last March up by 10 full percentage points. That is close to, but not uh, nearly as severe as what Paul Volcker did uh, in, um, in 1980 to uh, uh, 82. Uh, and so I think um, we won't have a recession as bad as we had back then, but we'll, we'll definitely have a recession as the lagged impacts of this major monetary tightening uh, start to kick in, and they haven't kicked in at all right now. What do you think about what happens in the labor market? Right now, it's really holding up fairly well in the face of everything else that we're dealing with. I guess, what's your prognosis for that worsening? How bad will it get? When will it happen? And is that what tips us into official recession? Because that hasn't happened yet. Well, it hasn't happened, Courtney, and that's precisely the point. The fact that it hasn't happened uh, and the Fed has done a significant uh, monetary tightening to date just tells you how much work uh, they have to do. Uh, Chair Powell used the word that, you know, unfortunately, this operation is going to involve some pain. His word, not mine. Pain means rising unemployment. So the unemployment rate's got to go uh, probably above 5%, hopefully not a whole lot higher than that, but it could go to 6%. And again, uh, go back to what, you know, the, the type of pain that Paul Volcker had to impose uh, on the U.S. economy to wring out inflation, uh, he had to take the unemployment rate above 10%. Uh, we're not going to get there. The, the only way we're not going to get there is if uh, uh, the Fed uh, under uh, Jerome Powell sticks to its word, stays focused on discipline and gets that real federal funds rate into the restrictive zone. And the restrictive zone is a long ways away from where we are right now. Mr. Roach, for tens of millions of people leading up to this, I would submit, you know, they're, they're living in the 1930s in terms of what they've been enduring. And for a lot of people, we're already in a recession. And this is not meant to be a wise guy question, but what changes if, in fact, the definition of recession is you check that box what what's what changes in the world because companies should be doing things based on what they see regardless of whether the definition is reached well guy i don't know you know if anything changes uh, the definition we've already had two consecutive uh, quarters of negative uh, gdp growth um, they're technical and who knows they may even be uh, revised away uh, but uh, you know obviously we're going to have to have um, a cumulative drop in the economy somewhere of around you know one and a half to two percent. The unemployment rate is going to have to go up uh, by you know uh, one to two percentage points at a minimum. Uh, that would be a garden variety recession. No no shift in the definition to hit that. You're right. A lot of people are still feeling uh, uh, considerable discomfort right now, but it, it's a it's a big economy, and there, there, there's always cross currents of uh, uh, of suffering and, um, uh, and and still prosperity uh, in the broad fabric of an economy like the United States. 
And to that point, Stephen, ahead of the release of your book, obviously our economy does not operate by itself. We are in a very interconnected world. Give us sort of your theory of where you think things stand right now between the United States and China and our business and political relationships therein. Well, they're terrible. I mean, it's um, in the last five years, we've gone from a trade war to a tech war to now a cold war. Uh, and the title of the book says it all. We're in a an era of accidental conflict, uh, a conflict that didn't have to happen if it weren't for false narratives that both nations embrace toward the other. And when you're in this uh, trajectory of uh, escalating conflict, as we have been, it doesn't take much of a spark uh, to turn it into something uh, far more uh, severe than, than, than most are willing to concede. And I'm very concerned about what's going on in Taiwan right now. And I think that has a strong potential uh, to uh, uh, spark this um, uh, accidental conflict that I write about in this new book. We look forward to reading it. Stephen Roach, thank you very much for joining us here this evening on Fast Money. Let's go around the horn for a moment if we can, and let's let's sort of trade out some of these comments. Bonowan, what do you make about what uh, Mr. Roach has to say? He has a lot of dire warnings about where we are economically and what potentially could be to come. Uh, I think he's speaking from an informed opinion, and he's, <laughs> he's been around long enough to see several market boom-bust cycles and what the implications are. I want to focus on the rate story only mm. because we kind of opened with that, and then we kind of bounced a guy there. If what he's saying, if I understand what he's saying to be true, essentially we're probably going to need to tighten another 8% or so in order to get rates back to that restrictive 2% real rate. I, I have a hard time seeing that, but I think that all of us as market participants need to take that into consideration as a possibility mm -hmm. and no longer a side of zero probability of something like that happening. I would say even if you were to cut that number in the middle and then stay elevated as they've indicated that they might, I can understand why he's calling for a recession and that the worst is yet to come. The only thing that's still kind of holding us and allowing them and emboldening the continued tightening is the labor market. And the longer that stays strong, the more tightening there will be and the more pain ultimately that will result. Dan? Yeah, I, I think, it again, it's back to that unemployment. I mean, he just said 5 or 6% unemployment. We're at 3.5%. That is the um, pre-pandemic low. That was a 40-year low before the pandemic. And so if we see unemployment tick up to just 5%, I mean, what does that mean for the U.S. consumer? It means it's weakening at a time where we're seeing all these inventory issues that a lot of investors at retailers think are going to be moving out. That's only going to get worse. And then all the things that we talked about, Tim was talking about that secular shift towards semiconductors that are going into all these consumer products. And that was supposedly the tailwind. You see that slowdown. You see inventory built. So I, I guess the point is it is not hard to see if the last piece of this puzzle is unemployment ticking up to see the global economy, most definitely our economy, but the global economy really taking a pause. Then throw in all the China stuff. Tim said it last week. Deglobalization is dead. What does that mean for the global economy? China has been a huge engine growing GDP at double digits for 20 plus years until the last few. So to me, it's just not a great environment looking forward. I know this sounds really dire. God, all of us, right? I know, doesn't it? But it's just not a great environment. And take every crisis that we've had in my career over the last 25 years and mash them all together. That's kind of what we have here, unfortunately. Yeah, it's really hard sometimes, I think, to look at history as a guide for this one because there's so many cross currents going on.
but of course it's what we have, so it's what we use. Well, for more market insights and advice, don't miss CNBC's Delivering Alpha Investor Summit in person, September 28th in New York. It is the final week for early bird pricing, so head to DeliveringAlpha.com or scan that QR code conveniently right there on your screen. Well, coming up, stocks unable to bounce back from last week's losses, so how can you navigate the volatility? Well, we're laying it out giving you some protection plays using options. The details of that next. Plus, check out China tech name Pinduoduo surging in today's session at more than 14%. Details on the big earnings report that had investors piling in. More on that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The S&P 500 staging a failed comeback attempt to kick off the week, adding to Friday's massive sell-off. Today's volatility sparking a handful of huge bearish bets on the market, which could be a sign of even more pain ahead. Mike Co joins us now to break down the action. Gosh, we're a bunch of negative Nellies here. Mike, what you got for us? So uh, SPY, the ETF you were just referencing, it traded 1.3 times its average daily put volume. That may not sound like a big increase, But actually, that means it traded more than a million extra put contracts. In fact, over 13% of all the options traded today were puts on the ETF. And the biggest trade we saw was a purchase of over 45,000 of the September 9th expiration weekly 359 puts. Those are a little bit more than 10% of the money. The buyer paid 34 cents for those. That obviously looks like a bit of crash protection. That kind of event, a decline of over 10% in as many trading days, actually is an exceptionally rare event for the S&P. That happens less than 1% of the time if we look back over the past 90 years or so. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune in to the full show. It's Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. I believe I'll be with you then, too. Coming up, we'll break down one trade that has gone absolutely nuclear over the last week. Will this continue to be a glowing investment or is it just negative chemical reaction that's brewing? Those details ahead. But first, Penduo Duo popping. What the move says about the strength of China tech. Stick around. More trades and fast money ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Chinese tech stock Pinduoduo topping the tape today. Shares soaring almost 15% after posting better than expected earnings in the second quarter. The company attributing those results to a recovery in consumer sentiment. So could Pinduoduo's results be a sign of more strength to come from China tech? Tim, this one just always just feels like, I don't know, throw a dart. Is it going to be strong? Is it going to be not? It just feels so volatile. Is it time to dip in and believe in this? Well, it, it's it's hard not to think that anything positive coming here, especially on the e-commerce front in China, isn't isn't great news off of a low bar. And again, these were great numbers. This was a big beat uh, year over year up 39 percent. But some of the GMV uh, for this particular period up over 107 percent again, sequentially telling you where we're coming from. The real uh, exciting element here, though, was a record gross margin, despite the fact that the company said that they're going to be I- investing in, in certain technology. And, and so this is a great a great release at a different time. This would have been applauded and it would have had a reverberation into some of the other online retailers. I- I'll say one thing about investing in China tech stocks. There's a piece of news that happened, you know, came out late last week that I think was not seen by the market, which is that the public county 
Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, uh, basically a U.S. accounting standard board, um, seems to be coming to terms with Chinese officials on giving access to financials and potentially avoiding major delistings of Chinese ADRs. That would be huge. That would be great news because, again, institutional ownership of the sector has gone south for the last year and a half and probably mm-hmm. is at a low point. So great numbers, uh, decent, decent uh, kind of change in, in the air, possibly uh, actually very good change in the air. Hmm. Interesting stuff there. Certainly a move that stands out among its competitors today. Well, meantime, we've got a retail buzzkill. Kohl's, Abercrombie and Fitch, Gap, Victoria's Secret and Macy's, just some of the names sinking lower today. But more retail earnings kick off tomorrow with Best Buy reporting before the bell. That company cut its guidance last month, citing softening demand for consumer electronics. So with expectations coming down for Best Buy and many of its peers, frankly, what's ahead for retail? Bonoin, I mean, is the bar low enough for Best Buy? We also know the electronics were weak at competitors like Walmart and Target, at least as a category. They warned us it wasn't going to be good. Can we have more downside surprise here? Uh, listen, I know you probably don't want me to be negative. I can give you a short answer. I can give you a long answer. <laughs> give me whatever I mean, the answer feels right I, to I, you. I, I think, you know, Verone touched upon it when he talked about, like, XRT versus the S&P. And then you talked about it briefly when you mentioned Walmart and Target and how they've really struggled in the apparel and... and um, technology type of sector, um, electronic type of sector. I don't think it's really gonna be any different for Best Buy here. Now, to your point, I do think sentiment is so bad that there, typically there is always that option for kind of like that that contra trade, but I just don't think this is the, the proper setup for it. I, I think there's more pain ahead. I think they've what they've tried to do is dampen the blow by getting out in front and letting you know and guiding lower, re-releasing and kind of letting people know what's to be expected. But I don't I don't expect an upside surprise here. Okay, guy, you know Best Buy is one of those companies that actually has a team that gets a lot of credit for its operation, much like a, a Costco or a Home Depot, the way that they run things even when times are tough. Do you give them any credit for that going into this report? I dig those geek squad cats because being a geek myself, (laughs) we sort of relate to one another. No, I mean, it's been very, Best Buy has been cut in half since uh, Thanksgiving of last year, effectively, from 140 down to current levels. So, I mean, it's a difficult environment. And the question you have to ask yourself, did people load up on all their electronics in the pandemic and how much of that pull forward is going on. Now, I think people will say it's manifesting itself in the stock price. I get it. Problem is, I think there seems to be more pain ahead for a lot of these retailers. Some retailers are getting it. Dollar Gen up decently today on a lousy tape, but some others aren't. And the ones you mentioned are top of that list. Yeah, of course, we always talk about what they're selling at Best Buy, but of course, there are services that they're trying to push to, like the Total Tech, which I'm sure we're going to talk more about when we get that release. But we do have a quick news alert for you. Lucid Group is filing for a capital raise of up to $8 billion. This is according to an SEC filing. It'll be a combination of common stock, preferred stock, debt securities, warrants, and more. Dan, what do you make of this move here on Lucid? Listen, the story of these, I guess, these EV names, going back to mm-hmm. Tesla over the last 12 years, they have to continue to raise cash. They're going to burn a lot of cash for a very long time until they become profitable. Here's a company that has a $27 billion market cap, and they have $2 billion in net cash. They're going to lose more than $2 billion this year. So they're going to have to keep doing it. They're going to have to keep diluting existing shareholders. So that's the story. You want to play this as a secular shift. Maybe you spread your money around in a bunch of these things is some will succeed um not all of them though. right and you just got to know they're going to burn through that cash they're going to need to raise more of it as yep. time goes on well coming up a radioactive rally what's behind the atomic move higher in one uranium name our very own tim seymour he owns the stock his take his trade 
and more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Uranium, the Global X Uranium ETF, ticker URA, up more than 7% today. And the trade has gone absolutely atomic in the last week, rallying nearly 20%. <laughs> Shares of Comco Corp, you're going to have to help me with this one, Tim. The world's largest publicly traded uranium company, surging almost 30% over that time frame. Tim, you're in the stock. I can't say I'm a uranium expert. What's going on here? What's the trade? What do you make of what's to come? Uh, love the writing of, of that copy, too. It has been an atomic move. And, and I'll tell you what, Kamiko CCJ is a company that's a great way to play the space. I also own that ETF. Uh, but if you think about it, uh, the, the news flow over the last six months has been so pro-Uranium, both here at home uh, and obviously in the last two weeks, you have Germany reassert what we knew, which is that they have to, uh, you know, they cannot close uh, that final nuclear plant. But Japan last week talked about two big new nuclear projects. And this is uh, obviously a country that has, has had nuclear issues and, and, and one that's back at the table. So demand side, again, go back to the, the numbers also that we heard from Kamiko. Uh, the same as you hear in other sectors and other resources, how well are these companies being run is part of the trade in addition to the macro around it. And again, this is a company that after actually being somewhat negative, partially negative on free cash flow per share, will probably do almost a 10% free cash flow yield next year. Um, they just signed 5 million pounds of new long-term uh, uranium dioxide contracts. Uh, again, the tailwinds for the sector and I think for the world here are really powerful. Fascinating stuff. You always learn a little something on this Fast Money Kamiko. That's an interesting one. Coming up next, we've got your final trades. It is time for the final trade already. Let's go around the horn and start with Tim. When you find yourself in times of trouble, there's a song about this, uh, but also you buy J&J, trades at a discount to the S&P, <laughs> and I think can be very defensive here while also being offensive. Guy. Marathon Petroleum Court. Okay, Bonowin, what do you got? Berkshire, 20 billion in free cash flow is good enough for me. And Dan, when you find out. yourself in trouble, also get your buy list together. I think Nike down there near 100 will look really interesting. Okay, very interesting. Thank you very much for watching Fast Money here tonight. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.